Hello, I'm Deputy News Editor Annabelle Collins. In June, I hosted a roundtable to discuss the impact scrapping certain drugs and services from prescriptions could have on patients and the NHS. We invited a representative from NHS Clinical Commissioners, the organisation who put forward the proposals, along with a representative from the RPS, Celiac UK and a London LPC. It certainly made for a lively discussion and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Welcome to CND's roundtable debate on whether the NHS should remove any drugs and services from NHS prescriptions. I am CND's Deputy News Editor, Annabelle Collins, and I am joined by my co-chair, Editor of CND, James Waldron. This debate has been prompted by news in March that NHS England is considering scrapping gluten-free foods, pain medication fentanyl and travel vaccines, along with other items, based on the recommendation of CCG representative body, NHS Clinical Commissioners. The independent organisation estimated that this could save £128 per year to be put back into the health service to fund what is called high-priority areas, such as mental health and primary care. When CND first covered this news, it sparked a debate among readers on the CND website and on Twitter. Since then, we have polled readers on their views and will reveal the results during the debate. This roundtable is a chance to discuss this policy and the impact it could have on pharmacists and their patients. So I will give our panellists the chance to introduce themselves. So starting on my right-hand side, Sandra, if you could say your name and um, your role. I'm Sandra Gidley and I chair the English board at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm Hitlish Patel, I'm the CEO of City and Hackney LPC. I'm a community pharmacy contractor and I sit on the local CCG prescribing board so I'm acutely aware of the issues raised today. I'm James Waldron, I'm CND's editor. I'm Graham Jackson, I'm the co-chair of NHS Clinical Commissioners, also a GP and a clinical chair of Ailes-Revelle CCG. I'm Sarah Sleet, I'm the CEO of Celiac UK, which is the patient charity for people with celiac disease, one of the groups which will be affected by these proposed changes. Brilliant, thank you everybody. So... um, as listeners, um, listeners will have just heard that we are joined by um, NHS Clinical Commissioner's co-chair, um, Graham Jackson. Um, so I think it would be quite good to start by hearing from Graham what prompted the development of this policy um, and when did work start on it? OK, thank you. Um, the important thing to recognise is that the NHS has a finite amount of resources and we need to make sure we use those resources appropriately. We recognise there's an area here whereby there's uh, money being spent invariably across the country on certain prescriptions that has an opportunity for savings in certain parts of the country that might be reinvested in other services. This was brought to our attention by a number of our CCG members who had seen that prescribing patterns between CCGs was quite different. And if you chart prescribing differences, it's quite considerably stark between different parts uh, of, of different parts of the system, not necessarily by region, but by CCG. So some commissioners have effectively changed their prescribing behaviour locally. Uh, and others have struggled to do so. Brought our attention, we then looked at this in more detail, and we came up with um, some suggestions about where changing prescribing habits would release funds, potentially, for those funds to be reinvested in other areas in the NHS, recognising that we need to spend the money very effectively for our patient outcomes. So how did you decide which drugs and services should be listed? Um, Was it a long process? So what's been going on for many, many years uh, with an organisation called Prescript has um, been helping us with this, and a number of medicines organisation teams from different CCGs have been working on this as well. 
But basically, there are areas that are still prescribing drugs which are some of us deem unsafe. There are uh, uh, some people prescribing drugs which are uh, deemed to be very low or no clinical value. And when you look at this, there's actually quite a several million pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds being spent on these drugs, which we would argue potentially has very poor outcome for the patients who receive these drugs. And actually turning around and using this money more effectively would be better for the population overall. And I'd just like to go to um, the other panellists at this point and say, um, when you first saw the list of items, were you, were you surprised? And um, I suppose, what was, yeah, what was your initial reaction? So starting with, with Sarah. In some ways, um, I think from the, the gluten-free prescriptions perspective, we weren't surprised because we've seen um, changes in prescribing policy across England. Uh, but very patchy, so some areas deciding to severely restrict what was available, other areas carrying on as normal. Um, so it, it had been a growing trend, um, and we have been continually looked at for a number of years. So I wasn't surprised. What I was surprised about were the, was the framing of the consultation and the framing of the arguments, which have, um, you know... Uh, repeating assertions which we have shown to be untrue. So I was a bit disappointed that, again, same old myths trotted out to justify the changes. And were you involved in the consultation at all? Had you had any, was it, did you have any knowledge of what No, on? we didn't. Um, so the first we saw was Simon Stevens' statement um, to the media. Uh, we had no idea that it was coming. And even in his statement, he... Uh, talked about things like um, prices in terms of gluten-free, for example, going down. And when challenged, the Department of Health agreed they had no evidence to back up that assertion. Sandra, what would you, what would you say the same question? Very similar, really. I, unfortunately, at the beginning, when the initial announcement was made, there was very little detail behind um, some of the drug names. So, for example, fentanyl's on the list. And if you think about um, fentanyl as a drug, then that includes patches and quick-release um, products. But I, I gather it's only some of those products that are being released. And I think it would have been helpful to everybody who's a health professional if that full amount of information had been there at the beginning so that there could have been a, a more informed um, initial debate. But as a community pharmacist myself... Um, and I can remember the days of the blacklist, so that shows how old I am. Um, that was where things like cough and cold remedies, which used to be freely available on prescription, um, were taken off. And, and everybody survived. But I do know from uh, being a locum and working in different areas that I'd agree with Graham. There are very different prescribing patterns, but there are also big differences in what people will buy themselves. So when I work in an inner-city environment... Um, very much people on benefits they will go to the doctors to get their pain relief to get um, paracetamol elixir for their children when I work in the the leafy suburbs of places like Winchester people will buy them they, they think well it's easier quicker I can afford it um, and that's actually what we have to consider because we can't have second-class health citizens if there's a blanket ban introduced Sandra, just on that, I mean, putting your RPS hat on for a second, does the society yet have uh, kind of a formal view on NHS clinical commissioners 
changes specifically or just on these individual well, you know, on the products? That funnily enough, we've just um, put together one on gluten-free, uh, which is, I think, to be signed off today. So the timing is um, very appropriate. And um, in that, we've actually raised uh, some concerns that a blanket ban would be... Um, bad for patients because there would be some families where, um, particularly children, where they then just wouldn't buy gluten-free foods, they wouldn't be able to afford to, and that would have a considerable impact on people's health. We do also say, though, that bearing in mind the drive against obesity, we're not convinced sugar, sugary products, biscuits and things like that should be on um, prescription. Um, and then we, we have some ideas about... Um, maybe we should look at the system available in Scotland where they have the gluten-free food service run through a community pharmacy and people effectively have an annual budget. So actually then the kids could have their flour and pasta, um, but maybe when it's their birthday they could have a special treat. So I mean, I will be going into this more detail yeah. later, but would you... I, is, am I right in thinking kind of gluten-free is the thing that jumped out at you most on this list then? It, That's why it, you're working, the LPS is working on guidelines anyway, so I guess it seems to be quite a big uh, it, it, issue. It did, and when we actually drilled down into the list, we could see that there was actually quite a lot of logic behind some of the suggestions. Um, but it's once you knew the fine detail, you thought, well, yes, that actually makes sense, because slow-release doxazacin, for example, very little um, proven benefit, um, costs a lot more money. Um, so that's fine. The one that really raised my eyebrow at the time was travel vaccines, because as somebody who just spent about £400 having lots of vaccines to go abroad, I didn't realise anybody was getting a <laughs> prescription, so I felt a bit miffed. <laughs> There's a few aspects that sort of interested us when we looked at this list when it was first published. Some of it really makes sense. So, say like the lie of in it's ridiculously expensive, and there are alternatives, like levothyroxine. So there should be no reason why liotyronine should be even prescribed, because it's almost 100 times more expensive than levothyroxine. And a lot of the drugs listed on there do make sense, and we could have no argument against sort of saying as a community pharmacy that, you know, it's not a bad policy. When it comes to other things like the gluten-free products and the travel vaccinations, there's there's two things that we would like to consider. One is, obviously, we'd lose income in the number of prescriptions because of the number of prescriptions would go down and uh, for the, the gluten-free products. But at the same time, I think um, some of the readers of CND might have even pointed this out. Gluten-free product dispensing, it, it, it's a bit of a pain. And uh, the, the number of products out there and, in fact... When I worked out on certain items, we actually make a loss when it comes to dispensing them. So, just for example, I had one product just earlier this week. Um, I couldn't get it from my normal wholesalers. And it was £6.66 listed in the drug tariff. And by the time you, you pay postage and everything, it came to about £11 or something. And this was for just one, one packet of, I think, flour or something. Now, apart from the expense of it, the amount of work that was involved in just dispensing one item was huge. And when I worked it out, we in fact made a loss on that prescription. So with a lot of effort, and then we end up making a loss. So 
whether the patient actually needed that product or not, obviously, is a different argument. But from a community pharmacy perspective, if gluten-free products went away tomorrow, I don't think we would lose that much in terms of income. But my concern is, as Sandra pointed out earlier, is about deprived populations. We want to make sure that you know, the deprived populations still have access to gluten-free products where, where patients actually can't afford to buy these. So, so that's one thing. And similarly with, with travel vaccinations, our, our, our feeling, even at the LPC when we discussed this, is that for those who can afford these travel vaccinations, they should pay for them, but there should be a safety net because there are a lot of people who travel abroad and might not sort of take this say, typhoid vaccination. And if they come back with any sort of illness, like, like typhoid, then it's going to cost us a lot more in treating those people. So, so there has to be a safety net, both for gluten-free products and travel vaccinations. Otherwise, most of these um, suggestions seem appropriate. Can I come in with yeah, a point of clarity there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think look, that's great to hear all that. I think just for clarity, for, for this, you know, there, when we brought this out, there were three areas. There was the area where we thought there's very low or no clinical effectiveness or, or safety issues. And I think I'm hearing that most of you are actually agreeing that that, is, that does make sense. So for complete clarity, for example, a coproximal, the drug which was very, is sort of deemed dangerous and banned many years ago, is still being prescribed. Then there's the liothirine, as you say, the second group, which is clinically effective, but actually alternatives are much better value. So it's important to state those things again. And then the gluten-free and travel vaccines, we just expand that a little bit. Um, so travel vaccines, first of all, I don't know if you're aware, but in the GMS contract, which is the contract GPs are bound by, there's a lot of lack of clarity about which travel vaccines can be prescribed in NHS and which can't. And um, over the years, there are some that are absolutely have to be prescribed in NHS for the public health reasons that it actually raises. But because of the lack of clarity, a number of people are getting travel vaccines through the NHS, where some would argue it's inappropriate. They pay for an expensive holiday and expensive flight. But then that, I think some of that is a confusion. So clear guidance to primary care about what should and what shouldn't be prescribed on the, on the, on the NHS is very important. On the gluten-free, then it's going to be a very emotive. I agree, it's going to be very, very emotive. Um, but there have been variabilities across the country. We must remember also actually the DH is doing a big consultation now, which has meant that we, from our perspective, have stepped back to let us see what that DH consultation will give us, because that's a, a much more broad-ranging piece of work, which will help inform all of us of uh, some, some, some views across the population. Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, th some of this reflects a bit of a systemic issue in terms of the NHS, in which area pockets of um, prescribing, pockets of service delivery have been traditionally seen as quite marginal, we're not interested in it, um, you know, it's gone along without any clear input in terms of assessing what is useful, what is not, getting some evidence behind it and then delivering against the evidence. So when it comes to something like celiac disease, I think that's one of those areas, you know, which has been very poorly served, frankly, by the NHS. We've still got three quarters of people not diagnosed in terms of their management. Um, annual review has been recommended for goodness knows how long. Most people don't get annual review. One of the few areas of support is, is gluten-free prescribing. And 
again, because of the lack of investment in this area, and it, it's been tucked away in a corner, um, things like efficiency in procurement have simply not been looked at because, you know, it's, it's a bit of an effort. We've got things over there uh, that we need to deal with. We've been calling for many years now for a complete review of the list. Um, you know, we have been saying for many years things like, you know, products that are not healthy should not be um, prescribed, a rationalisation of that list, the look of the cost, but it's not been done because the priority has been elsewhere. And now that's being used to beat the patient because the proper management of the system hasn't happened. And I think the problem is that if it's... If that's the approach in an area like celiac disease, what's going to happen in all sorts of other areas? You know, the, the NHS, if it's going to disinvest from certain areas, it has to show that it's disinvesting on a good evidence-based approach. I think Sarah's absolutely right. The list of gluten-free products has grown like topsy yeah. from the days where you could just get horrible, dusty bread in a red tin um, to all sorts of things which are um, available now. But in Scotland, they've done exactly that. They've reduced the formulary. Yeah. Um, it's pharmacy-based scheme, so people don't have to go to their doctors yeah. and uh, waste doctors and receptionist time. Yeah. Um, and they've actually also reduced the drug budget because, um, or the, the gluten-free budget by 3% by mm -hmm. doing that. Might not seem a, um, a lot in the, in the bigger picture, and you could save more if you cut them, but it just shows what you can do yeah. if um, you apply some logical thinking to this. There's still a range of um, foods available that covers most needs, but it's not um, the whole caboodle now. And then you get economies of scale with purchasing, so it yeah. seems to make sense. Okay. I would just like to add to what Sandra just said there, that the range of gluten-free products and low-protein products is just growing and growing, and there's so many different suppliers that our wholesalers don't even keep a lot of these lines. And then there's this price differential. So the suppliers know that they've got a captive market and that whatever they charge, they'll get paid for. So I just did a, like a quick Google search yesterday, and um, Tesco's gluten-free Flarmix, sorry, I shouldn't mention sort of uh, supermarket names, but I thought just to give it a Others are available. The BBC would always say. So their gluten-free Flarmix for 500 grams is £1.70, and a leading brand on prescription, 500 grams is £6.66. So that's hugely inflated. So like four times as much. So... Uh, and then you have things like low-protein couscous. You have low-protein rice pudding. So it's getting a bit ridiculous. Alphabets. I mean, you know, the low-protein alphabets on prescription. So it, it just, I think what it is is it, there should be gluten-free prescribing, what I feel is on non-prescription, but there should be standardized price that mm. have the flowers on there at a certain price, can't go beyond that. Have, have the breads on there. Have, have the staple foods on there. But don't have a lot of these other things that people surely can make out of just plain ingredients. So this is the other thing. And I mean, it, it's a bugbear because uh, I can start talking about ostomy products and, um, you know, such like. Because there again, it's a captive market and colostomy products are hugely overpriced. Mm -hmm. So... This is the thing that I think the NHS, if anything, needs to take control of the pricing of these products 
and um, I think we'll, we'll have a lot more saving there and make sure that you know patients don't go without. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it is within the gift of the NHS to do this. I mean, yeah. the ACBS is responsible for approving products to go on, and they are responsible for looking at cost effectiveness, but they haven't been given the support by the Department of Health to really do that job properly. And hence, you know, products... Pricing has gone down, actually, through the ACBS, but they haven't gone down in the same way that they could have done if they'd been given proper management support to do it. So it's a shame. So I think that pricing thing is a really important issue, whereby the NHS is maybe paying more than, than the non-NHS would be, so they've got to hold that. The other thing I just to say also, it's not relation directly to all these areas, I think Sandra mentioned the words, the, the classic words, blanket ban. Mm. That's never been anything we've said. Actually, we've talked about actually taking guidance that helps people see there's a variability, an unacceptable variability across the country. And actually, a blanket ban is very difficult to, to enforce, and there's always going to be exceptions. So as a medic, we never ever talk about black and white. We always work in a series of greys. And so I think we need to make sure that we're not talking about that. Now, whether the DH has an outcome, mm. but it's slightly different. So all these products we talk about here, the celiac under the gluten-free under the DH consultation is slightly different. So you can recognise that, because there could be some outcome for that consultation, which is more draconian than others. But every other product we're talking about is actually reducing variation across the country and making sure we get more consistency in prescribing. The number of points there that mm. we, I think I'm just I'm concerned that we're going to fall over our, falling over ourselves, but mm -hmm. just been putting things together and not have some clarity on the lines of argument. Mm -hmm. And um, at this point, actually, I think if I just pull in one of our reader comments about this, um, so this was from Andrew Paxton, who's a community pharmacist. He said that gluten-free products should be subsidised and not provided free. I mean, what do you think of that model? Would that work? Sounds so bureaucratic. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's more paperwork. Yes, exactly. I think that is the problem. I mean, there is an interesting um, pilot study going on in the Vale of York, which is effectively doing that by uh, providing a pre-loaded credit card, mm -hmm. which looks at the difference in terms of a gluten-free version of a bread versus a gluten containing um, and then the um, the patient can go and shop and, and use that there are lots of have been lots of concerns about that approach in terms of um, fraud and, and misuse um, in terms of uh, the use uh, you know the administration costs I think they're sort of a little bit more balanced but I think there are sort of other ways that you can add value to what you're doing through prescription. So if we come back to the Scotland um, example, the gluten-free food service, that has woven in um, a annual review. So we have now have, instead of a, a GP or a GP surgery undertaking an annual review, a prescriber, you know, a pharmacist can do that in, a, in a, an appropriate setting and a, a good quality um, uh, service. And we've been talking for heaven knows how long of extending, you know, pharmacists' role in terms of delivering care. This seems to me a perfect example of combining low-cost approach to prescribing with added valued um, services in terms of healthcare. And I just wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned, Sandra, I think it was about health inequalities. Um, mm -hmm. So we uh, published a blog um, by a contractor endorser, Mike, he's called Mike Hewitt. Oh, I know Mike very well. Yeah, I'm sure we do. Um, and he, he, he said in his blog that, um, and it's, 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 quite, it's quite a th 
thought-provoking and emotive blog, but he said the poorest in society will face the choice of living in pain or being forced mm. to or, or being forced to choose between eating and painkillers. This will only in, increase health inequalities. And obviously, this is not just focusing on due to yeah. also the pain medication, but um, I, I maybe put this to Graham. How would you respond to that sort of comment? Okay, so the, the inequalities argument is a really, really important one to, mm. to focus on. And actually, it's always when, when you make suggestions in the system, you always got to think about the unintended consequences of, of, of any policy or a change. But actually, if you look at what we've put out so far about, you know, we've all agreed, mm. you know, ineffective drugs, high cost equivalents, etc. So we agree mm. that they're not, they're not in a situation. There is some debate going forward whether or not, if we get a consultation that's, that's right around this, whether some of that over-the-counter medication would also be something we would discuss in the future. But actually, there's been a sort of paradigm shift to um, the concept of blanket ban and the concept of being over-the-counter. And actually, that isn't in that original paper we're talking about, the top ten. Mm. So, so I think, you know, look at, you know, F, non, non-effective dangerous drugs, expensive but better quality drugs, and effective, but there's a debate around it, so your trial vaccine is gluten-free. Yes, if we take the, extend the argument further about proper resources and proper use of energy resources, then there are people getting products on prescription who could could wealth afford them. And you still need to think about whether or not these drugs are the right drugs for what they're being provided for. Mm. It is a, more, a much more complex argument. I would bring you back to the fact that variation across CCG is quite significant. And actually, we're trying to reduce that variation by the policy we're suggesting, and even, even out the inequalities that exist in, in our top 10 or our top 14 products. But I understand where that's coming from, but it is, it is taking it to an emotive next step. Mm. So just to sort of uh, add to that, um, locally we are finding that some CCGs, even in London, are sort of de-prescribing a lot of things. So taking things off prescription, simple things such as paracetamol. So saying that the patient should be able to afford to buy the paracetamol. That's fine, but if you have a sort of like an example of an elderly patient who's arthritic, and needs paracetamol regularly rather than going on any sort of non-steroid or anti-inflammatory, um, they need to take almost 220 tablets in a month. And that adds up when, when you just got a pension coming in. And, and then you have sort of about the health inequalities, again, sort of asking a, a patient to go and buy gluten-free products when they're have, having to go to a food bank to get their food. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's difficult, and some CCGs are making these decisions to stop products without actually consulting with, with their local patients, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's wrong, and it shouldn't be all just about money. There, there should be proper consultation and take the needs of all the local population into account. We've also had the, uh, another problem that's been highlighted where uh, in some areas they're also saying um, go buy a codeine-based um, painkillers. Mm. Now any pharmacist or ev- even the counter staff doing their job um, would be flagging up a problem if somebody mm. was buying this regularly mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and on the pack it says don't use for more than three days without medical advice. So there are some real inconsistencies in the system at the moment which um, only serve to confuse the patient mm. and are not helpful in the long run. I mean that, that, the whole issue of codeine on, on prescription or otherwise is an entirely new debate for another day but um, that has been flagged up as an issue in a number of areas. Mm. Um, 
And at this point, I think I'd, we've, we've focused a bit on gluten already, mm-hmm. but again, I'd, I'd just like to bring in our readers' opinions mm. on this. I think it might be quite interesting. So we found that 87% of people who responded to our poll um, agreed um, that gluten should be on, gluten-free foods should be on the list, um, which is it's, it's quite a high figure, and that obviously isn't going into any of the reasons why, which is obviously quite complex. So for clarity, it should be on the list of drugs that yes. should be considered. Yes, so they agreed, they agreed with, sorry, yes, they agreed with NHS clinical, clinical commissioners. Um, and I, I suppose I'd like to start with just saying, are you, su- are you surprised by this um, attitude of, of pharmacists? Is that something that you've had before? I probably need a bit of clarity on, are they responding in terms of um, the, uh, the Department of Health consultation, which proposes complete removal, mm-hmm. um, or are they responding on that, yeah. the sort of, you know, consider yeah. not prescribing, yeah. which is a different issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Um, Maybe we could just give a bit of clarity to our yeah. readers about, yes. about the difference between the two consultations. Yes. So we've certainly focused on the clinical commissioners, but in terms of... What, know, what the so Department what, of what Health... What we assume the, yeah, the yeah. consequences are, so maybe that'd be helpful. So the Department of Health has, has put in three options, um, essentially. One is no change. One is consider restricting in some way. Uh, and one is effectively complete removal, um, so the inability to um, prescribe. Um, and our position on that is that the complete removal is completely unacceptable because of all the reasons we've talked about in terms of health inequalities um, and uh, you know the, um, the, the use of these products in terms of supporting people with um, their diet and so on. I think if... if I think... People recognise, and we have been quite clear, that there is a problem in gluten-free prescribing at the moment. It is inefficient. It is costing the NHS more than it should do, um, and that needs to be addressed. Mm. But the, the, And I think what people have done is that they've flagged all of the problems with it without counterbalancing with why um, there is a use for this intervention. Um, in order to justify, you know, uh, re- complete removal, or, or, or in order to justify um, taking out a significant amount of it, and I think um, people aren't really aware of the very clear arguments for its continued use within the NHS, um, and there have been a lot of, um, you know, sort of mis. Um, What's the word? There's been a lot of uh, myths put out about, as I've said before, about reducing prices. When you come to something like bread, we've done a really deep dive in terms of cost differentials. We know on average bread, for example, costs more by about five times. But if you look at the low, um, the, low val- um, the, the, the stuff that people who are on a low income would be looking at, the cheapest options available, and you measure gluten-free versus gluten-containing, it's actually eight times the difference. So if you're, on somebody, if you're somebody on low income, it's even worse. Um, we know the role that these products play in terms of micronutrients and nutritional value, and I think that's one of the things that's been underplayed significantly by um, particularly the NHS um, England consultation, because about half of our iron intake is from these kinds of products. And so if you're going to take them out and you want to, as has been suggested, replace them with things like potatoes and rice, mm. there's 90% less iron in those. And yet people 
uh, with celiac disease are at risk of um, iron deficiency anemia. You know, so nutrition is a complex subject, and the generally the health service isn't brilliant at dealing with nutrition. Do you think that's been? I mean, I'm getting the sense you're kind of saying that hasn't been brought into the debate enough, or do you think that has been considered in these decisions? I, these I, I think we have um, put these arguments again and again to the consultations that have come out from CCGs, and yet the same um, consultation, when it puts its um, consultation out by another G, um, CCG, they don't take those issues into account. And I think there is a general problem in the NHS about framing consultations on all sorts of different, um, you know, proposed changes, which are done in a way which are very, very um, driven to the end that the um, commissioner wants to see. And there is a real danger that actually the credibility of these consultations with the public are going to be significantly undermined. And when you need to make really important decisions, you know, like whole service changes, people aren't going to buy into it because they're going to see that previous consultations have actually not been on a fair playing field. So I think it's a big danger for the NHS. Graham, I wonder if we back that over to you. I mean, is that anything you haven't heard before? Or is this no, I think it's, it's, it's very valid. I think it's important in the consultation that there's a, a high level of honesty to give a high level of integrity, so therefore actually the decision you make at the end has, is, is supported. You, sorry, just for clarity, you said the NHS England consultation. Did you mean the DH consultation? Sorry, the DH consultation. Yes, yes. It is a DH consultation. DH, yes. No, fair point. Yeah, there's so many. So, because, and of course, that is, at least without our control, that is a DH consultation. So, again, we're getting a bit confused here, but we're building a little, looking at a consultation, a national consultation of a lot of these products, but clearly, celiac will come out, or gluten will come out of that now because the DH are doing this piece of work. And it is. The outcome will be the outcome will be. Mm. So I think you're, the, the point about general consultations overall by CCG level, what we're trying to do with the other products is create, and we've already had our first stakeholder event last week, trying to create a consultation that covers a broad range of products at a national level, a consistent level, mm. uh, which you know, anyone can contribute into, uh, Then, which then CCGs would then consult locally depending on their demographic and their, their need. They may have different levels of prescribing of different products in their, in their locality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the point you make, I, I'm not going to argue the point, but that you know, the consultation to be effective does need to mm-hmm. paint the whole picture. Mm-hmm. That's effective consultation. Mm-hmm. I think many patient groups would welcome um, national approaches to consultations because, you know, just as um, my charity has faced huge amounts of resource in terms of responding to, you know, um, 200-odd consultation um, approaches. Many other charities are facing that level of having to respond individually time and time again to so many different commissioners. And that's, that's not good for patients in itself because it diverts resources from their job of providing uh, support for patients directly. So I think, you know, and as we've said with the DH consultation, we welcome a national approach. I think we need to get back to that much more. And I think um, maybe just going to hit us, maybe down to the, kind of the patient level again, have you, um, since this, this list came out, are, are people aware of it? Um, have you had any concerned patients coming to you? Or? I, I haven't had any sort of patients sort of commenting on, um, on this because I don't think it's got, got down to the patient level mm-hmm. yet. And um, like, like it was mentioned earlier, even, even local CCGs, 
basically are struggling to sort of come up with these decisions. They're waiting for a national steer, mm. you know. I, I also sit on the um, London Pharmacy Procurement Board, which is covers London, mm. and they look after prescribing needs in the whole of London, and they're even waiting for a, a, a sort of a national steer on this. Now, coming back to patients, um, I don't know whether Sarah would sort of support a limited list of gluten-free products, or dare I say, when sort of have some sort of means testing for, for getting this, uh, these products. Because I think the 80% the of pharmacists, you said, you know, who say it's supporting a reduction in, in gluten-free prescribing, are probably looking at some patients who, who are affluent and they could easily afford to buy the products, but they still have the, the fresh bread, you know, eight loaves of fresh bread every, every, every month. And, and you start wondering, you know, that are we sort of having the right resources in the right place, and should we really just have these products for people who, who really can't afford to have them? But again, you know, it's it's difficult moral sort of decisions that need to be made, and I don't think we can make them locally. I'm not sure whether we can make them nationally, but some sort of decision needs to be made, because I think the, the gluten-free market actually is sort of sort of got out of control of it. I struggle with the concept of means testing, though, because yeah. um, people in different parts of the country even make different financial decisions. Um, thinking about young people starting off buying houses now, very little disposable income and two people working, but they would um, be means tested and probably have to pay. If we're serious about um, trying to help people manage and control their condition... It seems to me that the existing system we have, whether you pay for your prescription or not, um, maybe um, should be looked at. I know that's a political hot potato. Nobody <laughs> ever wants to re review that one. Um, there are yeah. all, it, well, it does. There are no, but um, politicians won't approach it because there will be there will be winners and losers, mm -hmm. and whatever they do, they'll get in the neck from somewhere. Um, so I, I just struggle with that idea, but. Um, it, it doesn't seem morally right to me. But there's, there's a much wider debate to be had about what the health service can and can't afford. And it bothers me sometimes that we always pick on medicines as a, apparently a quick win when there are many other procedures in many other parts of the health service mm -hmm. that um, are custom and practice but actually not well evidence-based. Mm -hmm. um, but the Drugs budget is huge, so it's always under great scrutiny. So, yes, do the easy wins, but, I mean, we really do need to think about the patient here and um, the support they need in managing their condition. And actually, if they do have a review once a year in a community mm. pharmacy, that can only be good for the patient. Mm. And it would also mean that there'd be more once they realise that the pharmacist does have the wider knowledge and expertise about the condition more likely to flag up any other problems yeah. instead of making a GP's appointment. Yeah. So, lots of winners. And there's lots of variables here. I mean, we talk about means testing. How about diagnosis testing? There are people being prescribed gluten-free products who have got a questionable diagnosis. I'm sure. I yeah. absolutely mm. accept mm -hmm. that we've got a whole bunch of celiacs out there we haven't yet diagnosed. Mm. Absolutely subscribe mm. to that argument. And, you know, I shouldn't use anecdotes, but I'm going to use an anecdote here. <laughs> I've had an interesting conversation with one of my patients who is absolutely celiac, who is getting the bread on prescription, but is still drinking beer, so his TTG is still positive. <laughs> so that's, that was an interesting debate. Mm. So, so he's putting gluten in from another source. Yes.
And that's def the beer is definitely not available in the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but I, I guess it, you know it's a similar argument, isn't it, about people who um, have ha have got an issue um, and they're smoking, of course, and you I know, and, that. and it's terribly difficult, you know, that. for the NHS to to c get into kind of moral judgments no, about people's yeah. behaviour. I guess it's 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 more focused in the in the gluten because the, one of the arguments that comes back from people are saying. This is a food stuff, mm. and there are other people with other food intolerances who do not get prescription. Get prescription. Mm -hmm. Then that argument plays out. Mm. Then I think I fully understand the person with heart disease and the smoking, of course, that is. Mm. But actually, it becomes a little bit more blurred. But it, it yeah. isn't a simple food intolerance, is it? No, it's no, an autoimmune no, disease. That. Yeah, and that, if yes. we had a drug for this, would we even be having an argument about it? You know, so I think it is because of the way that the NHS deals with things that aren't drugs in, to some, you know, traditional yeah. drugs, yeah. that it, it doesn't get treated with the same degree. It tends to be trivialised and therefore marginalised. Can I just ask Graham a question from his sort of CCG hat on? So what I find is that neighbouring CCGs have such varied policies yeah. on this. So, so for example, if I'm not mistaken, Enfield has stopped prescribing gluten free Whereas Herringay, which is next door, may, may be more deprived area, but they're still prescribing, but they've got some sort of scheme there which works pretty well. And what I'm finding is a lot of CCGs are making these decisions locally, and a lot, lot of times without sort of fully assessing why they're, they're doing it, and it mainly it's money that's sort of driving this. So should it be that CCGs should be following up national directive rather than deciding these things locally. What do you think? So I think that's the whole point of, 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 the, of the reason behind some of this, this work here. And again, beyond just gluten-free, to go mm. back to the list of you know, we started with, and, and it is, it is a broad, from my perspective, our perspective, it's a much broader list than just gluten-free, as I said before. But, and it is that national variation, and it, and it is not regional, as I said previously. It is from CCG to CCG. So if we can facilitate, by doing this piece of work, taking stakeholders' mm. work, if we can facilitate a more consistent approach to these prescriptions or these products that has got an evidence base behind it, makes sense, takes sight of inequalities, then there is still a saving of, of money in the NHS, mm -hmm. millions of pounds, that can be reinvested in more effective, cost-effective, better outcome products for our patients. That's, that is the basic argument here. And the national approach, so what we're trying to do here is go to a national approach that actually gives a baseline that CCGs can then mm. come and be supported. Because quite clearly, and I work in an area which is, which is quite, quite an advanced medicine management process and has done well before the CCG. I can't take credit for it. It was already established in BCT days. Um, but it's, but it's, it's not the same across the country. Some areas have been successful in finding ways of reducing, to say, doxazine MR, for example, which is a barn door should go. Other areas have struggled with it. So if we can help um, by having that national approach, then we'll get that consistency, and that will address the issues that you're raising. Mm. It's not all about the budget on this side of the fence compared to the budget on that side of the fence, because that is the inequality that we cannot accept. I have to kind of agree with you on the um, unwarranted and unsubstantiated variations, but it, it seems that what you're saying um, seems to be more central control. When the government, the mantra, the, the politicians Absolutely. are always saying, oh, local decision-making. Yeah, no, so yeah, yeah. so how, how do you square that circle? So, so I sit here as a, as a national <laughs> chair of an organisation and I go back 
<laughs> tomorrow, and I'm sharing my own CCG with mm. my all my you know view of localism. I'm absolutely passionate about clinical locality mm. leadership. I absolutely agree with you. So it, is, it isn't there's not one or the other. It's actually saying here's a here's, here's some guidance and process that you can understand the evidence behind why people have done this. And it's also about sharing good practice or sharing mm-hmm. other practice if you question whether mm-hmm. it's good or not. Mm-hmm. But we have seen a huge variation. But there are areas of the country that's been restrictions on some of these products and patients have not suffered. But if so, we were better at sharing just best practice throughout the NHS, yes, we'd well, we have are, a load more money. We're but we are very it. good. Absolutely not very good at all, are we, in a number of areas. Yeah. But isn't really the fundamental difference? If, you know, as you've said earlier, quite rightly, if we take out the stuff that we know doesn't work, we take out the stuff we know is just an expensive version of something mm. that does work, everybody agrees with that. The issue is on some of these other areas um, about not everybody needs it necessarily. This is a health inequality issue. And the reason that there is um, variation across the country is because there's different attitudes and cultures to dealing with uh, that variation and the acceptability of that variation. And that's what we're struggling with. How do you actually come up with a common approach to... Um, what is acceptable uh, mitigation in terms of health inequality in a system that gives out drugs and is not allowed to means test? There's different parts of variation. Come back to the gluten-free, of course, and one thing you've articulated mm. is about the limited list or the uh, bread, flour, pasta, mm. full stop. Mm. I think most people would agree with that. Yep. Uh, and that's, that's sent with Buckinghamshire policy. Yeah. Bread, flour, pasta, full stop. And actually our policy is eight units a month mm-hmm. flat. But so whilst the inequality of whilst we can still get your pizza bases and your custard creams mm. in different parts of the country, there's got to be an issue that helps helps areas say this is not an appropriate use of NHS resources. Mm. So I think Absolutely, so, but no, equally there's got to be an approach that says for those who have decided no it's fine to completely remove, you need to come back in line. Well if we're getting a national consensus then that's an interesting interesting position. Mm. Again, I guess we've got to cage this all in the fact that this is a DH consultation yeah. that actually we can debate this. But, but, but some actually. CCGs have already taken that approach, so yes. it is within, you know, yeah. you are dealing with that now. But yeah. Has there been any assessment of what's happened when it's been taken away? Or have we been <laughs> usually... What's the metric behind that then? Well... <laughs> Can I just say that the DH consultation has talked about, well, there's been no response to this or we haven't heard of any real issues. Of course, actually, when you dig down and say, well, what have you done to assess the impact? Um, Very little has been done and very little um, systematically has been done. And actually, you'd need to measure over a long period of time because people aren't necessarily going to report um, issues for a long period of time because they're nutritional deficiencies and they don't kick in straight away. I think, I, mean, I think the point that you made earlier, actually, to me, actually, is if you look at the population of celiac sufferers, mm. celiac disease sufferers or celiac patients, actually, it's broader than whether you prescribe or not. Mm. I think you made the point in mm. passing. Actually, as a, to deal with this cohort, then we deserve, they deserve to have something more than just four loaves of bread or not. Mm. It, and actually, almost missing the point. Mm. So actually, are we doing that? blood count regularly, are we checking mm. the TTG, are they mm. leaking into the diet? Because mm. actually that's much better for the, the, the holistic approach to them as individuals. You yeah. need that, and but you also, I would argue, yeah, contend that need, some people need, an, uh, this is a, an intervention in order to manage that. Not you, everybody. But if you manage the patient in that way holistically, it yes. makes you think about the intervention much more effectively. And I agree with that. At this point, I'd just like to bring in one of the other um, 
services and drugs and the list which is omega-3 and fish oils mm. um, <laughs> and um, so the reason given for this um, was that the evidence for their use is weak um, so it's quite simple but um, 88% of our readers and our polls agreed that they should be removed from prescriptions um, I suppose maybe I'd just like to ask our Kitesh are you surprised so, by this result what, what are you so this is this? the thing evidence is what papers you read so <laughs> papers you know especially American papers <laughs> you know, they're all for it. They say it's brilliant. You know, best thing since sliced bread. Gluten-free. Gluten-free. <laughs> so, so this is the thing that obviously, when you look at nice guidance, there is. Um, I haven't read the nice guidance, but from what I hear, it's it's the limited evidence. But omega omega three, quite rightly, the the licensed products are about thirty quid per month supply, which is quite quite high. And you can easily buy over-the-counter for inside, inside five pounds <coughs> supply of, of a good brand. So I, I can't see any reason why patients shouldn't be buying those. And again, you know, with, with the limited sort of low clin clinical effectiveness of Omega-3, really shouldn't be on prescription. Now, coming back to, you know, losing the number of items that pharmacies are doing, you know, because... Some would argue that, you know, we are taking a lot of these items off prescription and we'll be losing income in the number of items that we're doing. But I don't think it's a problem for community pharmacy because year on year we seem to be dispensing more and more prescriptions of in other sort of for other ailments anyway. So I don't think we, we are concerned about loss of income from, from any of these products. But, but certain things like omega-3, patients should be able to buy them quite easily. Mm. I think that sounds kind of quite similar to your views on travel vaccines, actually. So it's something that perhaps you, sh you should be paying for yourself. Yeah, as long as we've got a safety net, because there are some people who will travel abroad and go to areas where there are sort of endemic diseases, and, mm. and they need to be protected because chances are that they will not... Uh, pay for the travel vaccines. I'd actually just add in that, um, again, a high percentage, 82% agreed that they travel vaccines should be should be removed, so that's obviously there's like a consensus. So again, um, I think a lot of pharmacies are now providing those travel vaccination services privately anyway, mm -hmm. and, and it's become quite a co competitive market as well. Yeah. So, a, I think like it was mentioned before, you can for an expensive holiday, so you should be able to just stop that up for, for a vaccination. But you could be going abroad for work. Exactly. So, so, so I think this is the thing that um, if you're going for work as a volunteer, there should be some sort of exceptions. Or, I mean, but there are clear, this is slightly different, there are clear guidance. Well, that's right, there's not clear guidance. <laughs> there is guidance about what should and what shouldn't be prescribed to NHS, but it is so unclear. And that's the issue here. So actually, it's almost really, this is not about changing the policy. This is making sure there's some clarity around the policy in the GMS contract. On the Omega-3, it's mm -hmm. also worth noting that actually there's, this is a historical issue. So there was nice guidance. If you're, if you're old enough, you remember the nice guidance which supported Omega-3 mm -hmm. in post, I think it was post-infarction, I think it was post-heart attack. So there was actually a really guidance that said, that the early guidance said it would, should be used as a preventative for secondary prevention. Of course, then they did some more evidence and showed it was mm. wrong. So I think I think some of these omega threes are historical 
prescriptions mm. that people haven't then updated their behaviour yeah. or their clinical behaviour mm. and saying, actually, medicine's moving, medicine pharmacy, mm. we work in a field that's moving all the time. Mm. And what we do today with our patients is very different mm. with our patients five years ago, let alone 10, 15 mm. years ago. So I think some of this is actually just historical prescribing that people haven't realised mm. that actually world's moved on. And we, we also got like I vitamins which are sort of prescribed regularly in some areas and some areas we don't allow them. So like for mac macular degeneration. The eye caps, yeah. And mm. eye caps mm. and uh, preservation tablets. And what happens is you go and see a consultant in hospital and they say you definitely must be on these for the rest of your life. And then you go locally to the GP and the GP says no, no, the CCP is like I can't prescribe them. So there is a bit of conflict mm. there as well. So again a national steer on that would be useful as well. Mm -hmm. The evidence is poor, as I understand yeah. it. <laughs> no, but the consultants are getting You can see what's uh, going to be on the second <laughs> list of ten. Consultants yeah. says it's right is not necessarily evidence-based. <laughs> it's medicine in my No, but, uh, and you're right there. But if we did everything by evidence-based no, yeah, medicine, yeah, sure. you, there's a whole swathe of good stuff that wouldn't happen because, you know, frankly, people aren't prepared to invest in RCTs to prove it. Mm -hmm. So it, there's always going no, to be that common. element. That, that's very common. Um, and now I'd just like to, to talk about um, fentanyl, which is actually the, an the anomaly to all of the polls that we conducted. So only 16% of readers thought mm -hmm. it should be on the list. Um, and it's, it stood out hugely. Um, so um, I think actually I'd, I'd like to go to Sandra and say, um, what's your reaction to this? Um, are you, is it surprising that pharmacists really disagree well, with it? Well, my original reaction when I just saw fentanyl, mm. fentanyl on the list was that is nuts. And then mm. I looked and I, I gather it's only certain <laughs> products. So it's, it's the instant immediate, release. Immediate release. Yes, yeah. which um, I don't see um, prescribed or dispensed that often um, mm. yeah. in reality. So well, the, the products I was really worried about will stay. £10 million pounds worth. Yes. Um, so, so again, because um, when the initial advice came out, um, they produced the list, but the link to the website wasn't live. Uh, good old, um, <laughs> I don't know whether it was NHS England or DH. So there was a lot of uninformed initial debate um, because people didn't have access to the full facts. Once they did, um, that hasn't always percolated back to community pharmacy. That's a really, really important point because actually, you know, fentanyl MR and the topical MR mm. patches are really very important in the palliative care patients, yeah. clearly. And we would not. And I, I, when I when I saw it, I thought that just can't be right because I hadn't seen the instant release. It is about um, the instant products. release fentanyl yeah. used instead of instant release other opiates, particularly yeah, morphine. morphine. And you know, and the, the mm. clinical effectiveness is very dubious mm. and difference in the sense that morphine is just as effective and it is yeah. a, a fraction mm. of the cost. Mm. And morphine is by far the biggest product used in this area. Mm. So it's difficult to understand why the fentanyl immediate release immediate releases is used. In some yeah. areas, but clearly, we've got ten million pounds to spend. Am I right in thinking that also fentanyl is more expensive than morphine? Is that part of the? Oh, it is more expensive. Yeah. 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 So that was part of the yeah. reasoning. It's for it an item-by-item item yeah. basis, head-to-head -head basis. Efficacy is pretty similar. Okay. Uh, and uh, the fentanyl is significantly now it may well be again, prescribers just going, not understanding. Oh, we'll go on to fentanyl patches. So if I'm going to go to fentanyl patches, as, yes. a, as, the, as the pain gets worse, I need an MR product. Mm. Why don't I start on the same drug? It doesn't stand up biochemically or pharmacokinetically, but that's, I'm, I'm just trying to think about why it might be mm. prescribed. So just to, just to clarify, because I've got the initial release here, which is what we initially reported, which was just uh, fentanyl. Yes. Yeah. So clearly that was... Pain in palliative care. So just for the benefit of our readers and, and, and for me as well, I think, could you just go over one more time 
what exactly you are. So it's a fentanyl um, immediate yeah. release. So it's a short-acting fentanyl, which actually I've never seen used. I've never seen it. Yet. So actually, when it first came out, <laughs> so, but someone is about? spending 10 million quid on it somewhere <laughs> in the country. Yeah. So a lot of areas just don't use it. So therefore, it, it, it's mm. a short-acting immediate release opiates that are just as effective products, mainly morphine, which is a fraction of the cost and is just as good for the patient. And did you, have you released that to healthcare professionals again? Was there a follow-up to this, or was this something that... I think so. Well, if, 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 well, I actually did eventually go back to the website because yeah. um, I, I felt I ought to, to know, and I mm. did find this, um, and somebody else had told me. But it's not generally well-known in community pharmacy land. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can... If one good outcome of this um, today would be that people can reassure their patients on long-acting fentanyl patches that there's not going to be a change in their no. medication, then um, that would be helpful. But as I say, it did mean there was some ill-informed debate around initially, and which in none of us want because it no. doesn't help. And in mm. retrospect, maybe there was an issue about how that was framed. Actually. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and I think what we've got here is a summary of... Uh, what your proposal is mm. out. I mean, the real proposal is uh, quite a lengthy document. Well, there are other drugs that now, now talked right. about, and we had a stakeholder yeah. event last week. We talked about um, trimipramine, for example, and, and a, a tricyclic, which is compared to nortripine, which is also expensive, compared to imipramine, though, or there's a huge differential in price. Yeah. And actually, there's enough, I can't really figure it out, I think it's about 14 million on trimipramine, I can't remember, but there are other mm. drugs mm. that are coming in. So this process is actually saying, here's the three, I'll go back to my three, three categories, you know, ineffective, dangerous, expensive, but actually fit a product, or the uh, effective, but uh, what, what else can we do about it? But this is these are just a starter, and there are other drugs that are coming through, and so there are other things that are coming through already that people are suggesting, either from you know pharmaceutical colleagues or from other CCDs and saying, hey, how about this? Well, on that note, could you shed any light on what kind of other areas you're looking at at the moment, even if you can't confirm these are ones that will be... Well, trimipramine is a good example. So, so there's, there's the whole drug spend issue we talked about already, there is, there is then, I think we've been alluded to, is also about these procedures, and example of procedures of, of low clinical value. And again, that's an area that's been dealt with by a number of areas of the country, but not consistently. Mm -hmm. Looking at the drug spend, particularly for this argument, you, know, you, do, you do start drifting into what we touched on earlier, the over-the-counter issues and, and the, the self-care agenda. And there are still products, the cough and cold mixtures, which we would all question the clinical value of, still being prescribed. You know, I actually tell my patients not to buy them either because I think the clinical effectiveness is not, is not, uh, not worth it. Mm. So it is moving, it's drifting. But actually, we're starting with these because actually there's a good evidence base, there's good data. You can say this is a process. And our consultation will try and encompass it, the process of understanding where, how drugs get onto this list. And actually, where, where else do we go? And really majoring on that issue is if you have a finite resource in the health service, you need to spend that pound effectively, most effectively for the population. Sandra and Hitesh, just in terms of the direction that they're looking to go in in the future, uh, I mean, OTC, coughing cold mixtures on prescription kind of stood out for me. Does that sound reasonable to you, or is there any kind of alarm bells ringing? Most of them aren't available anyway, so um, I would say look at some cool things that you might want available, but there are lots of anomalies that have crept onto what's allowed to be prescribed since the blacklist was introduced. Um, classic example of something that's far more expensive is the um, ibuprofen capsules. The, so you have to provide a brand. Um, I haven't got the price off the top of my head, but it's significantly more expensive than bog-standard ibuprofen tablets um, for no clinical benefit. 
Um, and very often, actually, it's new GPs. So you, you see very bad prescribing. New GPs, not used to the system. They, they've got something up on the screen. And um, I think pharmacists all over the country do their bit in um, sort of saying, I've noticed a couple of these. Is this, is this really what you want to do? And I've actually done sums over the year that every time you um, prescribe this, um, it costs so much extra, and this is for one patient over a year. It soon changes then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any arguments about a lot of these over-the-counter products not being prescribed. That is perfectly all right. And... But there is a, this other issue about some places where minor ailment schemes have mm. come to a, to a stop. Where, so then you're not prescribing the products and you don't have a minor ailment scheme either. So again, you know, we're talking about health inequalities again here. And so that needs to be assessed by, by local CCPs a bit more. I think that's of a concern that there should always be a fail-safe. So for, for, for patients, you know, who, who can't buy these products and who just might need them. And because some of these patients will sort of happily spend a whole morning or in, in a GP surgery just to get a prescription for paracetamol. And it would be yeah. dangerous to fall into the trap that because something's available, OTC, people should always be encouraged to buy it. Um, mm -hmm. So there are any number of examples, um, things like canisan pessaries, Actually, if you haven't had stress before, you need to go see the doctor. Um, if these um, products become available OTC and there's this drive to encourage people to do that, then we're not always doing what's best for the patient. So every individual case needs to be looked at on its individual mer merits and benefits. I have this other example of, uh, say, you want to treat a family with, with Threadwell and, you know, you're on income support or, or you, know, you can't afford... The treatment for treating whole family will be in excess of twenty pounds, and you just can't afford that. If you can't get it on prescription, you can't get it off a minor ailment scheme. You make sure, well, you, you just won't go and buy it. No, then it and spreads to all the other children in the yeah. school. So. <laughs> so these are the sort of issues that we look could look at, you know, minutely. Absolutely. So the unintended consequences argument is very, yeah. very, very strong, and and the causes argument is very strong as well. We just keep being cognizant of that all the way through. So that's why there's a reason why this is. Here's your, here's your top ten, which is said these are didactically clear, and I think we're all agreeing mm -hmm. on that. But actually, this isn't ten and stop. This is, here's a process. As it gets more tricky mm -hmm. and harder to do that, we need that input, that expert input from a number of areas to say, you know, is, it, is it valuable taking this to a certain level to the next thing? And all the arguments everyone's giving are very, are very strong and very valid. So we need to make sure we need to think about that as we expand this. But there is an issue about a change in behaviour saying, actually, this overarching message is, let's make sure we spend the money most, most cost-effectively. How, how much of a role do you think, um, or how, how much in, uh, is this being driven by... There's been talked about an issue with GPs who are facing patient mm -hmm. demand. Yeah. And actually, it's so much simpler, isn't it, if you can just say, yeah. I'm not allowed to. Um, when reality is that actually the GP or another healthcare clinician, um, you know, should be making a judgment call and standing yeah. by that judgment. So it's an interesting point because actually, there sometimes they they make that judgment call and, and still then reverse the judgment <laughs> because they feel they're not supported to do that. Mm. And there are issues with the GMS contract, the GP contract, mm -hmm. that says you know you must provide this service, provide 
that's just debate about whether that word should be changed to you may provide. So there are people that, who would not go down the route of not prescribing because they said they would feel legally exposed as a, mm. as a, as a clinician. So it does get much more murky, much more complex. So I think it is that there is a bit about support having a national process and having noise in the system that the population understands, mm. so people feel supported. Um, and actually, over the years, talking to patients about you know, cost-effective stuff, which I've done, done several times, it's amazing how your patients do start to come on board. Right, they yeah. come on board with you quite effectively. Um, so, so I think it is actually having credibility to have that conversation with the population, having the evidence to say, this is why we're doing it. Mm. And saying, you know, actually, we're all here to support an effective, free at the point of delivery health service. Mm. But actually, we need more, we need to change our behaviour somehow mm. to try and get the best of that money. And um, just briefly, almost at the end, I just wanted to consider um, how this. Sorry, just wanted to consider how these changes could impact the role of the pharmacist. So it might be something more maybe on Hitler's side. So, um, and also maybe um, from your perspective, um, from the gluten-free um, patients. So, how would it affect their opinion of pharmacists? And mm. could, they, could there be some tension, maybe? Do you want sure. to start? Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously we, we are patient facing and um, it takes a lot of explaining sometimes when when sort of uh, prescriptions are altered to sort of different products or if if you get a note from the surgery saying that sorry uh, not on prescription patient needs to buy this so we need to sort of have to engage with the patient at that stage and we need to have the right sort of information to make sure that we're getting the same message that the GPs want to get across and that the patient understands that message. So, so the, it can be very tricky. Say, say something simple like the omega-3, you know. I've had so many prescriptions sort of uh, requests come back and the patient needs to buy this. And then you need to be in a position to say, look, you need to buy this, but it is important that you do buy it because there is some evidence that it will work for you. And then the, the patient can decide. So it, it is tricky because we are patient-facing and there, there is a lot of explanation we have to do for mm. a lot of things. Mm. And it's not easy. A lot of times it's not easy, especially, say, like gluten-free products. If they stop that, we would have a lot of explaining to do. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of people talk about rights, which is quite interesting. Mm. So a patient seems to think they have a right to have yeah. everything on prescription. Mm. And I think we need to reframe that argument so the patient realises they have a right to something, the basics, mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. core products, but they don't have a right to choice mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we can't afford that. Mm -hmm. There's this feeling of entitlement mm -hmm. for a lot of things and um, it's difficult sometimes to explain that we just can't give you everything. Oh, it's the same with branded and unbranded. Yeah. And I, th I think, you know, patient organisations, we, in general, are very conscious of, you know, the, the financial situation that the NHS is in and are very willing to work with you know, commissioners and, and clinicians to make sure that we get the best possible out of the system. However, it's got to be done, you know, that, that coming together has got to be a proper consensus agreement about what the solution is, because if you're felt that you're given a fait accompli in terms of what the result is, um, you're not going to buy into selling that message to the patient. In terms of patients and their um, uh, relationship with the pharmacist, I think, um, particularly in the case of gluten-free, it's going to be the issue is actually going to be more with the GP and the, the surgery. That's probably more where the tension is going to be. 
um, we would very much support, you know, trying to rationalise the whole approach, mm. um, the need to focus the resources on where it's most needed, but that needs um, the clinicians to also play a role in explaining that um, to the patient as well. We, we will certainly, as a national organisation, back up those messages. Mm. I'll just sort of reflect on what Sandra just said, that that's the old needs and wants argument. You know, we're mm. in the business of providing the needs for our patients, mm. not necessarily going to the wants. Mm. And at the end of the day, it is a partnership between clinician and patient, but actually we don't bring the same thing to the party. Mm. We do, as professionals, bring something patients um, can't always have. Secondly, also the LPC issue, uh, you're describing pharmacists saying what the CCG is changing. I'd say the LPC should be right in there with the CCG decides in the formulary. So, you know, the, the pharmacy, community pharmacists should have, the LPC particularly, should have a chair at the discussion of the local formulary, because they then we would understand. Do, we do, yeah, yeah. We do. And so and then, it's, so the therefore, thing, the pharmacist yeah. should not be a surprise to the pharmacist. Now, as our time is very nearly up, um, I'd just like to go to each person to say, if you can, it's quite an ask, but just to summarise kind of just your thoughts on this topic and maybe just a few of the take-home points from, from this discussion today. Um, maybe I could start with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I think the take-home for me is that there is an opportunity for patient organisations to work with those involved in the NHS to um, come up with a consensus approach to explain the, the, the constraints on the NHS and to deliver a solution together. But the patient organisations and patient views need to be properly reflected. And I think the other issue I would say is that it's really health inequalities which are the, the issue that the NHS, I think, is struggling with most here and how to address those appropriately. Okay. So reflect on that, health inequalities are absolutely critical and important. We do not widen that gap. Mm. But actually, on the other side, there is inequality of provision at the moment, mm. yeah, unwarranted inequality of provision. And what we've tried to set out here is actually, here is an, here's some early work we can do to recycle this NHS, valuable NHS resource, back into a better product for our patients. Mm. Yeah, so similar sentiments. I don't have much else to add to that. But just to make sure that, you know, whatever proposal that we come up with, we should have, have some sort of safety net to make sure that people who really need some of these products, you know, don't have to go without. I think it's been really helpful to have Graham here to clarify the thinking. Um, but it seems to me that what is effectively happening is health professionals are being put in the front line of having to explain to patients what they can have and why they can't have it. Um, they have other and better things to do. And really, the politicians, and I say this as an ex-politician, are completely ducking a wider public debate about what the health service can realistically afford and not. So I take home for really, in a way, is unfortunately a lot of this stuff is necessary. A lot of it will be better for patients if they're um, not having substandard or ineffective medicines. But um, don't expect the four poor foot soldiers to deliver all the unpleasant messages in the NHS. Mm -hmm. Offset box. So thank you to all our panellists for taking the time today to join us. I think we've had a really interesting debate. I think, um, as you both, as you all said, actually, I think the health and quality issues kind of really got our teeth into that. It's been really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and so um, I'd just like to say to listeners, if you, if you have any further thoughts on this topic, do get involved on Twitter or Facebook using our hashtag 
prescription cuts, or you can email us and have your say at chemistandruggist.co.uk. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you.